Good afternoon. It's Friday, the 26th of November 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Patrick Henningsen, and myself, Brian Gerrish. Well, a little bit of sunshine has crept through in uh, Plymouth. So we started off the day pretty grey, cold and rainy. We've now got sunshine, but we believe a little bit more bad weather. Possibly climate change is going to come in for tomorrow. Uh, for tomorrow. So we'll see what happens on that. There's rumors that there might even be cold weather this winter, uh, Brian. So it's climate change. It's all climate change. Changing constantly. Okay. Well, where are we going to start? A killer, a killer variant, I believe. There is a new mutant strain that's been unleashed on the on the planet, and uh, we're we're told that this is the most important thing uh, happening right now. Unfortunately, we're going to say, Brian, that it is because uh, this is going to reverberate uh, again into to policy. Let's just have a look. We'll bring that on screen. This is what we're looking at right now in terms of what's on the loose. Here it is. Uh, this is the new variant uh, right here, Brian. And uh, uh, apologies for the cartoon uh, characterization, but this is a bit of a cartoon. It's just becoming. It's just the the, the latest variant. It's yeah, just... the underlying under underlying discussion is very very serious, but there comes a time where you have to make light of what's being thrown at us. Well, is, is this variant actually real? Is it everything that they're billing it to be? Uh, we'll talk about that in a second here, but this is what you need to pay attention to. Look at how this affects the economy already. Stocks and oil prices sink as new coronavirus variant spooks market. This is what the Financial Times is saying. How much truth there is to that remains to be seen. But what does that tell you, Brian? It tells you that there are signals going to the market, that there's going to be policy changes. That's why markets react. And, and the thing which I notice, and I think it's very significant, is that really we get no comment from the banks. You would have thought if business was collapsing all over the place, you would have the banks complaining, saying that they couldn't do their job. Silent, more or less silent from the banks, apart from the fact that we've got to adhere to the green uh, policy. So my, my mind says to me that whatever is happening in the economy, the banks are very happy with what is taking place at the moment. Yeah, you'd think there'd be some pushback yeah. saying this is going to damage business and so forth. None of that, no, right? Nothing. Completely. nothing. So they seem to be happy with uh, the status quo as it were. And so back to the sort of the cartoon clown world of the world of variants. And we picked this up because it's just such a poignant political cartoon. And by the way, the political cartoons are getting better and better, I've noticed. I don't know if you have as well, Brian. But this one here, they're, they're interviewing the latest variant. Uh, we're with coronavirus, and uh, let's know about its plan to wipe out humanity. You can see the vaccinators in the background getting ready to pounce. So, I mean, th this is basically a boiled-down version of what is actually true. This is this is how this whole thing is being portrayed to the public, Brian. So, um, back to the, uh, the the killer variant here. So, uh, we'll put that back up on on screen. And so, a new variant. And so, who do we need to talk to, Brian, to, to find out? What we need to know, let's talk to Sajid Javid, uh, the UK minister, and Ursula von der Leyen, head of, the unelected head of the European Union. This is what Javid has to say. The new B.1.1.529 African strain may be more transmissible. You see, we've highlighted the key words there, Brian, uh, than the Delta variant, and that vaccines may be, may be less effective against it. Yeah. So they're they're getting ready to shut down borders between countries, all, all based on what? Maybe. 
based on maybe, might be, could be. But let's see if we get more certainty from our, our, our wonderful leader in Brussels there sporting the beautiful helmet. Uh, the EU has activated the emergency break, here's the language again, emergency break to stop air travel to reduce risk posed by the new variant. So a few months ago, they were all traveling all over the, the globe in their executive jets. Uh, but now we've got a maybe um, new dangerous strain and suddenly we're going to put the brake on everything. Yeah, put the emergency brake so that fire breaks, you know, the language from lockdown language, you can see it's creeping in already. So you know what these people have in store for us. But, you know, this is all technical language, Brian. So we're going to sort of simplify this. So we're going to run a little translation for people, what, they're, what they really mean here uh, amongst themselves. This is basically, we'll translate this, Javid. Trust me, Gov, this new B11529 mutant might be the worst yet. Honestly, I wouldn't lie. Witty even told me. So get ready for more lockdowns and boosters. Yeah. That's our translation for uh, Javid there, the health secretary. And for Ursula, she's saying, stay strong. We promise this is the last territorial claim we will make for Europe but it is the claim from which we will not recede and which, God willing, we will make good. Yeah, because they have an agenda and this is all part of it. It's key, it's, it's obvious. And that translation is eerily similar to uh, someone's Reichstag speech in 1936, but we just thought we'd throw that up there. We saying this in, in, in slightly in jest, Brian, but we are actually dead serious um, yeah. in terms of the, the rhetoric. Well, we have to keep some humor to uh, balance what's going on, but that doesn't mean to say we're, we're not paying attention to how serious this stuff is. So take your point. Well, uh, in terms of policy, well, this is exactly where it's going. Look at this. Just as we were preparing the news program, this came on the wires. The public must prepare for change in restrictions in the wake of the new South African COVID variant. JCVI scientists warn. So they're saying that this is coming from South Africa, Botswana. So they're pinning the blame on those Africans, Brian. So it's got that exotic cachet, this new super duper mutant strain. Yeah. And uh, we'll just throw our friend uh, Caroni is back. We just threw him in there for good measure. But let's find out what the, the pontiff of global public health has to say, because we need to know the final word on this. What do the scriptures say on this? Well, the WHO, here's Teodros here. Uh, Bill Gates' is appointee at the WHO. They've held an emergency meeting, Brian, uh, to discuss the global response. There must be a global response to this maybe, could be possibly, deadly mutant, okay, uh, to the new variant. And with experts calling it, and I'm taking their terms, Brian, from their quote, they're calling it a super mutant COVID yep. strain. Nobody ever used this type of language before in actual serious science and virology just uh, two, three years ago. And all of a sudden, it is this, the, the, the discourse, Brian, has descended into absolute hysterical ridiculousness. Well, partly, I'm going to say partly, Patrick, and partly this is the control of language to get the message across. So they want sound bites. Super mutant mm -hmm. is something the BBC can keep pushing out on the hour every hour drilling it into people's heads and what are people going to be thinking about at night time super mutant so so this is a mixture of perverse um, uh, medical advice coupled with with propaganda and uh, 
psychological manipulation. And we're going to show a little bit later in the news how deep that psychological manipulation goes. And it's it's very worrying. And, and the term variant, I'll, I'll end with this, Brian. The term variant was never really used in this sort of talk about epidemiology or virology uh, before 2020. This is kind of a new invention. And I will go so far as to say uh, it's a construct. It's a construct yeah. because like you said, Brian, it's like media friendly. You can insert that in there. It's just vague enough that it could mean anything and it's nothing too specific. But, because, if, you, yeah. but if you want to frighten people, it works. So it's, it's part of the sound bites to keep drilling in the fear, super mutant. It sounds, children are going to pick up on this, aren't they? Mutant ninja turtles. It's all in the same bracket. Oh, you have the, the, the cartoon literature. You might go through that later. Uh, well, we, 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 we might manage a bit of time, but uh, we brought this up the other day that this is disgraceful propaganda going in for four-year-old children. And it's all about a planet uh, snotty or planet snot where these creatures are coming to Earth. So we've got a mixture of propaganda and pantomime, uh, but aimed at four-year-old children, utterly disgraceful. Getting them early. Yeah getting to them early. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked about uh, a campaign that was in Australia called SOS Australia and where they were planning to have protests at Australian embassies and consulates around the world to sort of raise awareness about the situation, especially in the state of Victoria, but as we said from the last program, in the Northern Territories as well, and in New South Wales with the vaccine apartheid, the medical apartheid, and the vaccine mandates that are quite harsh coming in and uh, the protests that are happening, but not getting enough publicity in terms of the mainstream um, global wow. media. Yeah, there's, and, there's basically a blackout, isn't there, on, on the genuine protests. We, we, we don't see that being reported. So, so let's roll this, this video here. This is SOS Australia. This was what we showed uh, about a month ago. And we're just gonna, just to remind you what this is all about. And then we will speak to, uh, in just a few minutes, we're going to speak to Monica Smith, uh, the woman who's in this video, but go ahead and roll this SOS promotion. Let me paint you a picture. Australia, once known as one of the safest and freest countries in the world. A land of spirit and ceremony. A land of opportunity, where the hopeful came for a new start, so their children could be free and prosperous. Where the battler had a chance and poor men made good. A land where you were free to explore your surroundings. A land with room to spread one's wings. A land of brotherhood, celebration and connection. But something happened. Today is the first full day of the New World Order. We've got to accept that this is the New World Order. The New World Order and the Australia we once knew is no more. Lockdown 6 was announced on August 5. It is no longer the land of the young and free. It is now a land of division, blackmail, coercion, discrimination and medical apartheid. Get off of me! A land where movement, speech, religion and opinion are no longer free. Protesting is illegal. We need help from our international friends. We are seeking your support to apply political and economic pressure 
on our leaders to change the destructive path that we are on. That is why we are organising a worldwide protest, with Australia excluded, in support of our plight for freedom. This is an official SOS from my beautiful country. We plead with you to hear our cries for help. So pretty powerful. It is powerful. And uh, as I said before, when you, when you think, you know, Australia, Commonwealth country, the view, the values and uh, the politics, supposedly democracy there. And suddenly, almost overnight, this has been wiped out and we're seeing a beast emerge. And what, why, why Australia? Is it, is it low population, big country, ideal trial area for these things? Uh, there's a lot of questions to be asked about why it's so severe in, in uh, Australia. Well, earlier today, I had a chance to put some of those questions uh, to that pr uh, woman in the video. Her name is Monica Smith. Uh, yeah. She is the head of Reignite Democracy uh, Australia. And we asked her some of those questions and also just a little bit more background on uh, the organization, what, they're, yeah. what they want to achieve, and also what life is like right now uh, in the Victoria State, Melbourne, where she's based. But we'll listen to that. Uh, right now. We're joined by Monica Smith uh, from Melbourne, Australia. Hello, Monica. How are you? Oh, I'm as well as can be expected, Patrick. <laughs> and Monica's organization is Reignite Democracy Australia. And Monica, for the benefit of our audience, can you just uh, give us a synopsis of how, how you came into this position and uh, this campaign that you're running right now? And that's taking on a sort of an international scope, but just uh, give us a brief uh, summary of how this all started. Well, Reignite Democracy Australia was born out of the, you know, corruption from especially the Victorian government during lockdowns, not being able to protest, express our freedoms, et cetera. So that's how Reignite Democracy Australia uh, became so popular because obviously people needed that sort of help to um, find resources to have their voices heard, which was really difficult. But most recently, um, I was arrested and on uh, charges of incitement, which are supposed to be for things like murder and stuff. If you uh, incite someone to commit a murder, you are also culpable for that crime. But in this case, it's incite inciting people to break the COVID restrictions, which is only a finable offence. So it's kind of like encouraging your friend to uh, park in a no parking zone. So it's pretty crazy that that's been criminalised. Anyway. I spent 22 days in prison because the bail conditions were so ridiculous, I refused to sign them. Spent 22 days in solitary confinement with no outside time whatsoever. We appealed those bail conditions and um, now I'm out, which is great. Anyway, if I organise any protests in Australia, I will go back to prison for three months and uh, they would just love that opportunity. And, you know, uh, because of my imprisonment, imprisonment, I was given a bit of an international profile and I thought, great. Australia really is struggling at the moment and the you know definition of insanity is to do the same thing over and over and expect a different different result. Well, we've been trying here in Australia every diplomatic sort of uh, political campaigning aspect. We have tried it all. So I thought, you know what, Australia is two or three months ahead of the rest of the world with the draconian uh, you know mandates and segregation and corruption in in this sphere anyway. So I thought maybe the rest of the world will want to help Australia fight because if we can fight this then anyone can because we are a perfect testing ground 
we are secluded on this island. We're very uh, spread out, so it's hard to organise things. And yes, it seems that the rest of the world sees Australia as a bit of a tip of the spear. And so I think that's why this SOS from Australia has gotten so much traction because people feel that if they help us fight, it will actually help their fight as well. So that's how we came to this situation. And uh, just on, on the local front, you know, describe to us what life is like, what life was like in Melbourne two years ago and what life has been like uh, in the last 12 months? Well, Victoria has the unfortunate record of being the most locked down state in the world. So when I say locked down, um, I mean five kilometer radius from your home and some people don't even live five kilometers from a grocery shop, so it's a bit ridiculous. Uh, one hour exercise time, masks everywhere, even in the middle of a paddock. Um, and also we haven't been able to cross state borders uh, for almost two years without signing paperwork. So it's one country, just so everyone knows, but uh, it seems like the states are kind of acting like they're uh, a country each state. So it's pretty difficult. Then on top of that, more recently, um, we have uh, we have been given some sort of sense of freedom because we apparently have a 90% vaccination rate, which I don't believe, but even even so, uh, they've opened everything up for the vaccinated. So uh, for people who are either unvaccinated or don't want to show their papers, the only two things they can do in society is go for real estate inspections and go grocery shopping. You cannot do anything else, retail shopping, gyms, uh, sporting, even 12-year-old children cannot play basketball without being vaccinated. Um, they can't go to their graduation, uh, school camps, etc. So it's pretty traumatic here. Um, the worst, and the reason I did the SOS mostly was because of the police brutality. Uh, when during lockdowns, when Victorians wanted to exercise their freedom of speech and protest, the police would absolutely come down with a heavy hand. They used rubber bullets, which are quite large, by the way, and even have an 8% fatality rate. That's right. The fatality rate for using rubber bullets is higher than the fatality rate of you know what, the current crisis that we're in. So that was really the major push was the police brutality was getting so bad. I was concerned someone was going to get killed. And so I thought this SOS was perfect timing. Uh, Melbourne has just been um, a very difficult place to live, but a lot of beautiful things have happened too. So people have come together. The freedom movement, as we call it here, is growing every single day. It's never gone backwards. And I will just say currently in Victoria, there is a bill going to parliament next week. It's called the permanent pandemic legislation. It is as bad as it sounds. So basically the state of emergency, which uh, the government uses to take away our human rights and has used that for the last two years is ending on December 15th. So they've introduced a brand new legislation, uh, permanent pandemic legislation, which means the, the premier, which is Daniel Andrews, can actually call a pandemic on his own without any health advice. He can also call a potential pandemic. So if there is a cough in England, he can say that uh, Victoria is in a potential pandemic. He can suspend elections. He can also put people like me or, or other people in prison for two years for no good reason. And there is no punishment if they make a mistake. There's no appeal. You can be force tested and force medical treated on. Uh, and it doesn't say, specify what treatments either. So you could be two years, you could basically be a medical guinea pig. So this is actually being voted on next week. So Victoria is in a lot of uh, angst about that. And just before I finish this point, I'll let you know, though, that for two weeks, Victorians have been sleeping at Parliament. 
the first time in Australian history anything like this has happened. And last Saturday, we had the biggest protest in Australian history in Victoria with over 400,000 people. And just so your audience knows, Victoria only has a population of 6 million. So that is massive. So I will just say there is some hope as well. That's uh, that's pretty unprecedented. 24 hour protest, people sleeping overnight. That's not something you normally see, is it in, uh, in, in your country? Uh, no, and it's just people bring pizzas and barbecues and pianos and music. And uh, it's been really revitalizing for the community. That's amazing. And, you know, just to be clear, if, if you will be arrested, uh, if you are, uh, in, you know, encouraging any gatherings or you're fronting any protests. So this is kind of a novel campaign that you're doing where you're sort of internationalizing it. You're, you're calling for people uh, around the world to mobilize and make their voices known, I would assume, at Australian embassies, consulates around the world. And, uh, and also, this is the extraordinary thing. Uh, you're you're also saying that governments need to be offering Australians political asylum. So is this normally something the West projects uh, towards, you know, developing world countries or towards Syria or towards Iran or Afghanistan or whatever? You're, you're reversing this this equation right now, right? Well, it is actually that bad. And that's the point. So um, if just one country even gives one person asylum, it will make international headlines and people will realise that this is actually as bad as it looks. And obviously the mainstream media in, in other countries aren't reporting on it. People don't actually know unless they've got family here. I actually know people who are trying to get back to Iran from Australia. Um, that is how bad it is here. So it's absolutely not novel and it's absolutely not over-dramatised. I know many people who want to leave. I know many people who are leaving Victoria right now as we speak because of this bill uh, but of course uh it's probably going to be spread throughout australia if we don't fight it hard enough and just tell us a little bit more about reignite democracy australia so this is a pretty unique uh platform that you're you're taking a very different approach it's kind of a neutral platform and you've got a lot of interest in new political parties or alternative mm -hmm political parties and you know forming coalitions and things like that and and I know that your country suffers very similar uh, chronic <laughs> problem that the US and the UK this two party monopoly or duopoly that seems to have a kind of lock on on policy and and a lot of people will argue Monica that this is the reason why we're in the position that we're in with this current crisis but uh, explain the intention behind your uh, your organization and, and what your objective is uh, in providing a platform? Sure. Well, to be honest, uh, Patrick, it's kind of just evolved into things that I had no idea it would evolve into. Um, so it has become a, a robust sort of lobbying platform um, where now a lot of political leaders want to come onto our platform because we have a, a large audience and we do influence change. And also my uh, supporters and followers and members, they're very active. So I, I create email campaigns to members of parliament. People actually do things um, from my platform, go and visit members of parliament at offices and things like that. I have over a hundred community groups around Australia with leaders who I communicate with on a weekly basis. And they have, a lot of them have over 200 members in each group so that's very powerful and in fact I got arrested not soon after I launched and successfully made those community groups happen because I think 
uh, bringing people together is is really dangerous uh, for the narrative because it empowers people. Um, but yes, yeah, so it's become a robust lobbying group is what I would say now. But also we uh, share a lot of latest news uh, that is actually uh, factual. Now, in terms of politics for Australia, we are in a extremely exciting position to have a protest vote change the political atmosphere forever. And there are some really great minor parties who I don't think will stay as minor parties because even in the mainstream media here, they are talking about the fact that uh, the two major parties are a little bit worried. Um, we have had no opposition in Australia. This has been the hardest thing for people to understand. Um, the other parties just they're not fighting against anything. Um, they pretend to pick little fights, but really no one cares about them. They're not fighting the big things. So this has left a lot of Australians absolutely disenfranchised. And just as a point to the difficulty that we are gonna have campaigning though, is like, for example, the pre-polling has opened up for our federal election. So basically you go and you vote on the um, candidates that are going to be in that party. Venues are actually rejecting unvaccinated people from going in to vote. So it's um it's not going to be a fair situation. And we're going to have to fight really hard because we can't travel across state borders without signing papers. We can't gather in, <clears throat> excuse me, in more than 30 people. So so it's going to be really difficult, but I'm really, really excited because the federal election is coming up early next year. And I really think that we're going to be able to shake things up a lot. <laughs> And and S, uh, Australia SOS Australia the big date is that your your campaign for is December fourth right that's and, correct uh, what would you uh, what what are you looking to see happen on on December fourth what do you what what would your message be to to everybody out there well I there's two things I really understand and that is I understand that a protest in England won't necessarily immediately change the life for Australians. And also every country is going through their own issues. So to put your issues aside and protest for another country is very humbling for us to see. Uh, but also, you know, it's you just never know what the impact could have. And if Australia is the tip of the spear and if someone drives past your protest who happens to have a very big economic influence in Australia and says, hey, why are there people protesting outside the Australian embassy? What's going on there? They do a bit of research. They see a bit of alternative media. And maybe they call Scott Morrison and they say, I'm not doing business with Australia anymore until you change things. We just don't know. But at the end of the day, like I said, we've been trying ourselves for two years and it's not working. So I'm just hoping that it does something different. And on top of that, Patrick, the people I've gotten to meet and the exposure that I've gotten to get for Australia's fight is, is also worth it. So something big might not happen straight away, but you just never know the ripple effect. And so far we have over 15 countries participating. And if anything, it has brought Australians um, a lot of courage to keep fighting and who knows the impact that that will have as well. No, absolutely. It's a, it's a very interesting and a totally unique and in my opinion, unprecedented uh, campaign that you're attempting, incredibly ambitious. But like you said, you never know uh, what's going to happen with these things yeah so but um i, I want to wish you uh all the best and uh we're very impressed uh with the work that you're putting in your organization your platform i think it's uh it's definitely something that is inspirational to to other people uh and if they're thinking about something that they can do in their country and who are in a similar situation you're you're definitely a, a guiding light in that sense so we oh, appreciate well. it 
thank you. I've got a lot of support around me and great staff. So I couldn't do it on my own and I couldn't do it with support from people like you. And also if anyone wants to start Reignite Democracy in their country, Reignite Democracy England or whatever, uh, reach out to us and maybe we can make that happen. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a great uh, point to end on. I want to thank you very much, Monica Smith in Melbourne, Australia. Reignite Democracy, December 4th is the big day. Take care and hopefully we'll speak to you soon. Thank you. Well, um, excellent, uh, Patrick, and what an amazing lady who stood up and taken the fight out there, which is what we need more people doing this, don't we? But if she wasn't reporting, would we know what was happening in Australia if we relied on the BBC or Sky or the rest of the so-called mainstream media? We wouldn't. No, no, no. And the, 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 the types of things that are coming on their platform, the conversations are pretty incredible and actually really yeah. relevant to our situation as well in Europe as well. So I encourage people just to check out, especially their Telegram channel yeah. uh, as well as their website. Just a reminder here, uh, this is what the campaign is here. Uh, this is December 4th. This is coming up pretty quickly, Brian. SOS from Australia protests on behalf at your nearest Australian embassy or consulate. So that's just a reminder there. And there's the URL at the bottom again, reignitedemocracyaustralia.com.au. Uh, you can get more information uh, there. And uh, Brian, just uh, a couple of days ago, we were sort of shining a light on what was going on in the Northern Territory uh, in terms of uh, the Chief Minister, Michael Gunner, pursuing a zero COVID and a 100% vaccination. And he, he was pretty excited. He was, he was very, uh, he was very hot hot under the collar as well. And so I think our efforts have gotten a little attention uh, from Mr. Gunner. He's not happy with our report, <laughs> Brian, on Monday. Uh, let's take a look at this. The Guardian reporting, Northern, Ter Northern Territory Chief Minister, uh, we'll just get this uh, up on screen here. Uh, Northern Territory Chief Minister attacks international trolls for spreading COVID misinformation. And so Michael Gunner is not happy with what's uh, circulating on the alternative yeah, media. Don't, don't, don't challenge his opinion. <laughs> not at all. So the chief minister, Michael Gunner, slammed the international trolls, tinfoil hat wearing tossers uh, for spreading misinformation about COVID-19 public health measures in his territory, in his fiefdom. Uh, hello to all the international conspiracy theorists watching this. Please get a life. <laughs> Well, I'm not yet allowed to use the other word, but I'm definitely going to say cheeky. Uh, this is the trouble, isn't it? These people unbelievably arrogant and so ignorant. They haven't got a clue what's happening around them. And he probably thinks he's, he's very important in the scheme of political life in Australia. But to people driving the COVID agenda, he's, he's just a useful idiot. Well, what's interesting is that we, we were quoting actual Australian residents uh, as well, and aboriginals. So he's saying that all of this is coming from outside the country, but in fact, my, um, in fact, Brian, it's coming from inside, inside, yeah. inside the country. But just a reminder, uh, Michael Gunner, chief minister, he's talking about conspiracy theorists and tinfoil hat and uh, crazy unhinged behavior. Well, we put a little a reminder, a highlight reel together of some of his more choice statements uh, over the last couple of months. Uh, so let's just listen to uh, what Mr. Gunner has been saying recently. Go ahead and roll this. 
If you are anti-mandate, you are absolutely anti-vax. I don't care what your personal vaccination status is. If you support, champion, give a green light, give comfort to, support anybody who argues against the vaccine, you are an anti-vaxxer, absolutely. Your personal vaccination status is utterly irrelevant. If you say pro-persuasion, stuff it, shove it. I know I'm supposed to say that I respect people's choices and reasons for not getting vaccinated. I don't. I don't understand it. I don't respect it. So if the majority are high vaxxed and there are only a few who are not, just how many people, how many vulnerable people are we talking about that all of the Northern Territory has to get vaccinated in order to protect them? I don't think there's any hard number for um, remote Aboriginal under 12. I can probably do some work for you about what that number is, but... Um, uh, when so that's the Chief Minister of the Northern Territories. I've got to say my response on this is he's a heavily reframed individual. So these words are coming out of his mouth, but where are they actually coming from? I, th I think this is, this is somebody who is heavily reframed. And of course, when you challenge them, he's got all of these ideas implanted in his head. The cognitive dissonance comes in and the, the anger and the arrogance come out. So dangerous man, because is he thinking straight? No, I don't think he is. And also the authoritarian, authoritarian character in the voice. I mean, it's like this is the way it's going to be, yeah. and and very very dictatorial. I mean, we for years we've always been in the West having a go at all these tin pot dictators in all of these far off countries, and how uh, insane Saddam Hussein and etc. How crazy they all are. They need to be uh, thrown out. They need to be moved out of power. And now we have the same thing <laughs> happening. And, and this is more or less the same thing. In fact, it's much worse. It's, it's much more uh, strident uh, even than the rhetoric from some of the worst uh, dictators yeah. we've seen. And who knows where this is going to go in terms of policy. I mean, I wouldn't it want will to... Get, it will get worse. Unless it's stopped, you know, Patrick, it's going to get worse because these people believe in their agenda. They're arrogant. They're extremely dangerous. They're going to, they're going to make it happen. This is total lockdown. So I think we should be saying well done to the uh, those Australians who are now standing up to be counted and massive peaceful protests, very, very powerful because of course, how does the government deal with peaceful protests? More violence by the police, that makes the agenda more obvious. So I think we've got to say well done. Well, if um, in Australia, we've got a small population, big territory and lockdown in UK, we've got a small nation, we've got a big population, and uh, what are we doing? Well, we're killing, we're killing off people. I want to come back to our reports from a day, a day or so ago. The NHS claim was we're here for you, helping you control your health and well-being. Let's just recap what the reality was. You're unvaccinated, you have no chance of survival, you'll be put on end-of-life care, you and your relatives will not be consulted. Uh, you will be drugged into oblivion. Now, maybe some people thought that these points were a bit excessive and this couldn't possibly be true. But we also asked for people to respond to us. This is one email that we've had in. My adult son suffered from epilepsy and learning difficulties and was in a care home. Despite his disabilities, he was phys physically robust. He developed a slight cold in January when his breathing became affected. The care home thought it prudent to call for an ambulance. He was then admitted to hospital. The care home 
say he was smiling and waving as he was taken away. The care home manager assured me that his notes had gone with him. This was vital as he had a history of severe adverse reactions to certain drugs, one of those being midazolam. Having finally managed to get through to the hospital, I was horrified to learn that he was going to be given midazolam and morphine. There's that combination, Patrick. And I, of course, asked them to stop administering them. He was admitted to the hospital in early January. I was able to see him three days later when I found him with laboured breathing and unable to communicate with me. So he's fed midazolam and morphine, both suppress breathing. And uh, this is the uh, situation that this person is seeing their son in. I spoke to the doctor and advised him of my son's intolerance to midazolam. He replied that he didn't know about this. This was in his notes and the care home manager assured me she sent them to the hospital with him. I asked for the midazolam and morphine to be stopped. After spending a few hours with my son, I returned home but told the staff I'd come back later in the day in the hope that the morphine would have started to wear off, which would have allowed me to assess his condition. About 20 minutes after I got home, I received a call from the hospital to advise me of his death. So what are we seeing there, Patrick? I think uh, very much we're seeing an accelerated pathway. And of course, the individual that sent that harrowing uh, story through to UK Column is saying, I don't even know what happened. I don't even know what the actual treatment around my son was. So this is incredibly serious stuff. Now, I want to continue that thread through because earlier this morning, I was able to speak to former nurse Debbie Evans. And Debbie has been doing some really tremendous research into uh, what has happened with this accelerated death pathway that we've now got running off the back of uh, COVID. So let's have a listen to this uh, little clip. Good morning, Debbie. Thank you very much for joining me. I know over the last couple of days, you've been doing some really deep research. And a few days ago, you were able to join me when we were talking to a family about the loss of one of their relatives, a loved relative, as a result of what appeared to be an end of life care plan within uh, one of the NHS hospital NHS trusts. Uh, a lot of questions to be asked about the death of that individual. Um, you've now found documents which seem to show what is actually happening in the NHS. What can you tell us this morning? Oh, yeah, thank you. Good morning, Brian. And, and thank you for inviting me to do this because yes, you're right. I do have some very grave concerns and some questions about what I'm seeing. And what I was concerned with originally was the rapidity of which patients appear to be put on an end of life care plan very, very quickly, uh, as soon as they're admitted, it would seem. So to research, you have to go back and look at certain documents. So starting off with the NHS long-term plan um, is very interesting. If anybody hasn't, hasn't looked at it, um, it's the delivery plan for the NHS in the 21st century. Um, so if we start off with that, um, it takes us to the national framework um, document, the NHS national framework document in 2018. And just for ease of reference for your for your viewers, I've made a couple of notes and it would be on page 30 of 167 of the National Framework. 
where it says in paragraph 91, the individual has a rapidly deteriorating condition and may be entering a terminal phase. In these situations, the fast track pathway tool should be used instead of the checklist. So obviously then I went to look for the fast track tool to see what that was. And I found it very difficult to, to um, upload. And as you know, I had to email you to ask you if you could access the document because I'd already asked quite a few people if they could access it and they couldn't. Thankfully you could. So I took a look at the, um, the fast track tool pathway. Um, and this was compiled in December 2018. Um, it's for individuals with rapidly deteriorating conditions that may require fast tracking for immediate provision of NHS continuing care. So NHS continuing health care is, is one pathway. However, if a patient is, is known to be deteriorating or expected to, deter to deteriorate quite quickly, they're immediately moved on to this fast track document. And to be honest with you, the only way I can compare it is the fast track document. If, if we're looking at a train line, um, Paddington to, to Penzance, Penzance being the, the final stop, this fast track document would appear to be the final stop. So it's the, the, the final bit of paperwork to ensure that that patient receives immediate palliative care. This fast track document also says that it identifies individuals who need access to NHS continuing healthcare quickly with the minimum of delay and with no requirement to complete the checklist or decision support trust. So this is a decision that's made very, very quickly. Um, an appropriate clinician is responsible for doing this. And when you look at it, it actually, an appropriate condition, a clinician could be the person that's diagnosed the patient, but equally it could be a volunteer from a voluntary organization, such as a, a palliative care organization. So this is unprecedented and it's very, very rapid. But Debbie, if, if, Debbie if, I, if I can just come in, if I may, if we um, encapsulate this a bit for, for our viewers and listeners, uh, normally people who, who were going to be on some form of end of, end of life uh, pathway, end of life care system, there would be a lot of decisions made around them. There would be a meeting with the family, the patient would be included, the whole situation would be discussed, they, they would be offered um, spiritual counselling or, or other counselling to deal with it. But the decision that that person was going to go on to end of life care would be a joint decision between the individual themselves, their families and the medical team. But what you're describing here is a system where we have um, essentially a fast track. And once people uh, are signed on to that fast track, then there is only one, one thing that's going to happen to them. They're going to die. And this is, this is in stark contrast to the fact that normally if somebody shows the signs that they are dying, of course, they're going to be checked to see whether that changes and they recover. So this is really like a death sentence for people. Yes, and, and you're absolutely right. In normal circumstances, you would have what's called a multidisciplinary meeting 
which would involve um, a whole a whole team of palliative care specialists, including psychologists, spiritual guidance and, and help um, if, if, if required as well. And it would be a decision that would be taken by the patient and by their families. And also the patient would be offered a preferred place to die. And that can always be speeded up. So if a patient is deteriorating, but would like or prefer to die at home, then those arrangements can be made with this fast track. All of that appears to be completely bypassed and the decisions seem to be um, completely clinical where the families aren't consulted at all. And, you know, if you put that in conjunction with a, a British Psychological Society paper that was published in 220 entitled End of Life Care Pathway During the Coronavirus Pandemic, this is a guide to psychologists for end of life care during COVID. And it's really quite scary because the um, it, what it says is that um, the speed from being well to death must be in, taken into consideration. Important decisions made, um, made uh, more quickly. Patients end of life care preference may not be possible. People will be unable to see loved ones prior to death or afterwards. And also really worryingly, loved ones may be affected as they continue to live with the realistic threat to their own health. So these are decisions made at pace. This is um, decisions made with using remote communication without even the family being there or having a say. So Patrick, um, really concise overview there by Debbie, but essentially you get labelled fast track, the death pathway starts, you're going to be isolated, you're going to be in a locked ward, your family are not going to be close to you, they're not even going to know what's happening to you until one day they're told you, you're dead. That, that, that's the most concerning thing about this, because under the sort of the guise of, of the COVID pandemic, uh, you have that restriction of, of families being able to have access to their own family members who are quote vulnerable, which is absolutely ridiculous. If they're on if they're on an end of life pathway, they should have 100% access to their family and their family to them. And the the language is incredible. Continuing care. Yeah, that's is, the continuing pathway. It's a pathway. Yeah. So uh, uh, a palliative, it's palliative care. Why don't they just call it what it is? Um, yeah. So it's it's incredible how all this is cocooned in all this kind of uh, a fluffy language. Uh, well, it's fluffy language to deceive the people as to what's really going on. But I've got to say, um, Debbie did a huge amount of uh, research. We can bring some of it up on screen. We're going to do more in the coming days. But let's have a look at this one first of all. This is the local government association document, end of life care guide to the councils. Now, one hand, you look at this document, it's it's got the nice colours on it, but it's it's very clean and and uh, short. It's quick and easy. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I've picked something up from this, but uh, we've got an introduction, executive summary about end of life care data, the role of councils, case examples. So there it is, pretty concise. This is the sort of stuff it comes up with. Uh, the focus of this guide is adults during the final 12 months of their lives, but the general principles also apply to children and young people. So don't think that they haven't got their eyes on the children. The guide was begun in early uh, 2020. And um, 
um, was nearing completion in March 2020. It has been uh, revised to reflect the new challenges posed by the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, the majority of these deaths occurred in hospital. That's a quite interesting statement, isn't it? Where the majority of the deaths are in hospital. Sorry, I'll blow this up a little bit. If we go on through, this is a key part here that all of this has been able to happen because of the Coronavirus Act of March 2020. So that act came through. Um, Mike Robinson warned us about a lot of the content in that act and said, just pay attention to the powers that the government is taking here. And interestingly, the same sort of thing being said by uh, Monica Schmidt in her commentary on Australia, that it was the coronavirus powers that the government was using to do what it was doing. Um, it says, um, if your health is deteriorating quickly and you're nearing the end of your life, you should be considered for the NHS continuing healthcare fast track pathway. So the moment you're getting old, you're getting into the old bracket, you're 60, certainly plus. You're vulnerable. You're Quote. vulnerable. So I'm in that bracket. According to them, I'm a vulnerable person. And you go near them. And if they can get you on that fast track pathway, top right on screen at the moment, uh, then they're going to look to uh, dispatch you as quickly as possible. The aim of the fast track process is to make quicker decisions for people at the end of their life and reduce stress for them. That's because you're going to kill them off quicker and their families. But the families are not going to know what's going on. Um, and then we get this sort of statement. There is as yet no comprehensive knowledge or analysis of the impact of COVID-19 on end of life care. But many issues and responses have been identified. So we don't know anything, but we've created a whole paper. to. We, a, yeah, go we, ahead. We've changed the guidance. We've changed the policy. We don't know anything. We don't have any conclusive studies or data, yeah. but they've gone because of the Coronavirus Act. They've rewritten guidance for the NHS and yeah. effectively a policy about one of the most important points of the whole health system, which is this end of life or palliative care. Right. But remember, this document is all about your local council in the first instance. And down the bottom there, uh, bottom right, it says we all want a good life, but we also want a good death. So if you think you're living a happy life, not according to your local council, because you should be thinking about your death. And uh, this bit up here, local government, uh, sorry, it says overall, we're living longer and remaining healthier for longer. Local government has been a major contributor to improving health and well-being. Really, the local government has been a major contributor to people, people's health improving and their well-being improving. Is there anybody in the UK who believes that statement or that claim? It's certainly one which I'd like to find out exactly what they mean there, but uh, that would be interesting to hear the explanation. It, it would. So we'll just leave you with that thought that uh, it's going to be a good death and the councils have a role. So Plymouth City Council at the moment is working to make sure you have a tremendous life, but they've also got a finger in the fast track pathway to death pie. So, so a good death, according to this document, is a fast death. Fast right? track, yeah. Fast track. Death. And how fast is the fast track? Well, it's probably as fast as the form is simple, uh, because uh, here is the fast track pathway tool for NHS continuing healthcare. And essentially, once this is uh, filled in, uh, you are going to head into a really bad place. So 
the revised tool accompanies the national framework for NHS continuing healthcare and NHS funded nursing care. So it's all about care with a death pathway underneath. Uh, lots of dates. Uh, we've got the standing rules regulation. This is all to give it substance to make it feel as though this is this is the uh, what's the word? This is all um, regulation which has been brought in. So anybody's using this form is comfortable because they see that they're doing the right thing under the regulation. Uh, so it goes on. It says, what is the fast track pathway tool? Individuals with a rapidly deteriorating condition that may be entering a terminal phase may require fast tracking for immediate provision of NHS continuing health care. No, it isn't. It's death care because they've decided you're going to die. So you're going to go onto a death pathway. The intention of the fast track pathway is that it should identify individuals who need access to NHS continuing health care quickly with minimum delay and with no requirement to complete the checklist or the decision support tool. This is what Debbie was talking about. This goes through incredibly quickly. Therefore, the completed fast track pathway tool, which clearly evidences that an individual is both rapidly deteriorating and maybe, maybe entering terminal phase, is in, its, in itself sufficient to establish eligibility. So this is a self-fulfilling prophecy here. We decide the person is dying, even though they may be entering a terminal phase, what appears to be a terminal phase today, tomorrow they're recovering. No, no, once you're on this, this is sufficient to establish eligibility. And uh, it goes on and eventually you come to the, uh, the details, the dates of birth, the name, the telephone number, and uh, over on the right, it's got the individual fulfills the following criterion. And uh, there is a paragraph which sets out roughly how you should be if you're somebody who's going to go onto this pathway. So this is, uh, this is pretty vile stuff, Patrick. And this is happening in front of our eyes. Well, it, it, is, it isn't, of course, because it's happening behind closed doors in the NHS. Did they do a poll at some point to say did the majority of the country want to have to fast track their, their deaths? I mean, where did they come up with well, this? The, or is this just because because of COVID, we need to speed things up uh, fast, faster? I think it, this, yeah. is, this is a cull. My personal opinion and for everything I've seen, and certainly when you talk to medical e experts who are in that profession in order to make people better and to care for them, they are saying what this is, is a calculated cull. So to answer your question, uh, what's the nearest analogy we've got? We've got uh, the Nazi T4 program where they killed off about 360,000 disabled, vulnerable people. And that was done in order to prove the, improve the lives of the wider German state. Similarities are, are just Obvious. That's that's the technocracy, Brian. The cold, calculated, administrative decisions, supposedly made for the greater good, but really made in order to sort of optimize profits, yep. costs, and and bottom lines and tick boxes and so forth. Yeah, that's a technocracy. Yeah, and uh, Debbie mentions this, and I think this is a very serious part of it. We've behind the scenes, we've got the British Psychological Society get involved the end-of-life care pathway during the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, let's just bring this up. It says, under normal circumstances, psychologists and palliative care services 
will work directly with patients and their loved ones and other healthcare professionals to provide a quote, holistic unquote, and coordinated approach to care. However, the profound effects of COVID-19 can drastically impact on the traditional end of life care pathway. So that nasty coronavirus, Patrick, it not only makes you ill, it, it, it then gets into the NHS and destroys the organization. It's an amazing virus. Yeah, Caroni did all that, not, not the government, not the administrators, not the consultants and so forth. So yeah. uh, it, it, is, it is pretty phenomenal how they're, again, scapegoating everything with, with the virus. Right. And this is the British Psychological Society. And of course, we already know that the government's behavioral insights team, a group of political psychologists, were working at the beginning of the pandemic to frighten people, to make them more scared of the virus so they would do as the government wanted. So let's bring in a little bit more from this document. Uh, this is the sort of thing it's talking about, the different ways COVID-19 can impact on the end-of-life care pathway, the speed at which patients go from being well to their death, important decisions that we need to be made more quickly, patients' end-of-life care preferences may not be possible. So don't think your wishes are going to keep you alive, not according to the British Psychological Society. Uh, people will be unable to see loved ones prior to their death or afterwards. Why? Well, the answer to that is because the NHS are locking the doors and preventing them coming in. That's nothing to do with COVID. That's to do with a human decision. Uh, it goes on to say government restrictions may disturb the funeral planning and attendance. Loved ones grieving process may also be affected as they too continue to live with a realistic threat to their own health. So clearly the British Psychological Society hasn't done any proper work into COVID statistics. Uh, but what have we got here? Uh, the time for difficult end of life conversations, which are normally spaced out over days or hours may no longer be possible. Decisions will need to be made at pace. So once somebody said, you are vulnerable, you are going to die, that fast track form is signed off. Uh, according to the British Psychological Society, they are going to help placate relatives and the person themselves to go along with that death pathway. Mm -hmm. it's, it's obscene. I, I'm, running, I'm running short of words. Uh, what have we got down here? Well, while decisions will, of course, be difficult for patients and loved ones to make, the circumstances due to COVID-19 may prevent loved ones being involved in these decisions. Family shut out, patient dies, and uh, nobody's the wider, wiser. And then down at the bottom, decisions made about patients will have to be communicated to their loved ones at a distance. And then it goes on to say this might not even be by a fully qualified health professional. It may be a, what it describes as a non-specialist health worker. So I don't know how anybody could see these documents, go through and read them carefully without realizing that what we've got here is a government driven plan to kill off vulnerable people in hospital with the support of applied psychology to pacify the people. 
Yeah, yeah. and I might add, uh, Brian, the American doctors, uh, the whistleblowers, many of them coming out, and they have been for the last year, saying, why were so many people shoved onto ventilators yeah. when there was no need to put them onto ventilators and the survival rate on ventilators with a chemically induced coma and the stress that the ventilator itself puts on, especially for older people, or as they say, vulnerable people, the, the ventilator itself is part of the fast track uh, pathway, if you want to read it in those terms, Brian. Yeah. And then you add in uh, midazolam and morphine and the, the drug cocktails on the back end of that. These are people that were absolutely uh, able to cope with whatever the symptoms were. They were denied treatment because uh, uh, medical authorities and governments in the West have said there is no treatment for COVID. That is not true. They have attacked and suppressed doctors, whistleblowers who are prescribing ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, and other very effective and, and practical and useful and, and good, well-known, well-established yeah. antibiotic combinations, vitamin D combos, zinc, etc., uh, that, that they use to cure people who, or treat people who have pneumonia or who have the serious flu. It's the same symptoms as COVID-19 apparently, but they're for some reason for COVID, once that label comes on, Brian, they're denied any access to any treatment. And oh, you have to wait for the vaccine. But when the vaccine wasn't around, there was nothing. And so in a way you could look at this, this pathway has been engineered on so many different levels from yeah. the beginning of the pandemic. Without, without question. And we'll remind people, and again, we mentioned this a couple of days ago, uh, that the government's just put out a resupply contract because it's desperately worried it hasn't got enough midazolam. And so it needs more of these uh, uh, pernicious end-of-life um, medication in order to deal with people. So here we are. The authority seeks to, drop up, to top up the stockpile holdings of midazolam and noradrenaline. Um, so we have to say that at the moment we recognise there are many, many good people working in the NHS, but it's quite clear that a lot of them, they are totally unaware of these decisions that have been made. They're working in another part of the hospital. They're not getting involved with the COVID ward. They're not part of the end of life teams. So they simply don't realise uh, what's actually happening here. Now, we're just going to bring up a uh, little video clip from uh, Iconic. This is advertising a film, uh, but the dialogue that we're just going to bring up on screen is so pertinent to what we've been talking about. And uh, let's have a listen to this little clip. Midazolam is a benzodiazepine and it's specifically designed originally for status epilepticus. Uh, so to prevent somebody who is having a, well, while somebody is having a large epileptic seizure, it's to calm their body down and to stop all the involuntary movements. Midazolam was a later development of the benzodiazepines. Basically, it is a potent drug with a quick onset. So it found a place for conscious sedation, which is a, a short intravenous injection, and it will sedate somebody very effectively for a procedure um, for a short period of time, and then it'll wear off quickly. So it was just what's needed. The only thing was that if you used it for that, it would have to be accompanied by a pain medication because it doesn't itself remove pain. So it would always be the benzodiazepine plus 
uh, an opiate to remove the pain. There was a gentleman killed in 2014 with 10 milligrams of midazolam. And the worst thing is I've also found out NHS paperwork that shows you that the protocol now during the pandemic um, is that they're giving breathless patients up to 30 milligrams of morphine and 60 milligrams of, uh, of midazolam, which is enough to kill anybody. The other thing is if you go to the British National Formulary online, and it's quite easy to look up, you look up the page midazolam, you will see that it's contraindicated to give midazolam with opiates. And that is standard practice in these end-of-life pathways. It should not be given. It's not medicine. There is no reason to be giving these medications. Midazolam should be banned from these pathways. Very to, to the, very to the point, that little clip, um, Patrick, and uh, if people are wondering about the priest speaking, he was previously fully qualified doctor who was so shocked at what he was seeing. I think it helped his decision to move across into the church, but he's being very, very forthright and speaking out. And that key statement about the, the quantities of midazolam being given to people, so up to 60 milligrams in 24 hours. These are big, big doses. And uh, we know from one case that we've been able to talk to the family, uh, one man was given 57.5 milligrams of midazolam in 12 hours. So that effectively is, is virtually double, double the dose. And these are breathing suppressing uh, drugs uh, both morphine and midazolam, so they're not going to help somebody who's who's in being ventilated. And, and just a reminder that that film, Brian, it, what premieres on December fifth, right? Uh, yes. On, on midazolam, it's with yes. uh, with Iconic, so yep. it's a documentary film. So we're we're looking forward to see that, and we're saying well done for getting that quality of information out, and of course well done to all the professionals who've been brave enough to speak out. So we just put our uh, little add up again. We are very, very interested to hear from people who've had experiences uh, with the prescription of these drugs inside the NHS. We realize this may be very difficult to talk about, but unless people speak out and warn others, uh, we're not going to deal with it. And I just want to remind people again, if we talk about the safety aspects of what's happening, we need to know that the control is in the hands of uh, real people uh, it's not to do with organizations. So if you want to know who's responsible, I'm giving you three people on the screen, and that's before we've even got near the politicians. And remember that the uh, UK column uh, COVID-19 vaccine adverse effects database, that is MHRA data, which we're, uh, we've got in the form that you can search, that's still available. And we remind people yet again, there's no published analysis by the MHRA of the, uh, the analysis they've done to tell us whether the effects are the result of the vaccines or not. Uh, we know in Cornwall, there's big problems with the, uh, uh, with the end of life care and drugs. This is why all their documentation is under review. But of course, midazolam features on this particular a particular one. What can we say, Patrick? This is really, uh, this is really horrific. 
stuff happening in UK in 2021. Yeah, and the, the worst part about it, Brian, and again, to underline this point, is that this is all being fast-tracked under the sort of the banner or the, uh, the, the crisis of, of COVID-19. Uh, and so there's no there's no real justification for it from a yeah. from a scientific or a medical point of view. This no. is purely technocracy, administrative, cold, calculated off the leash policy. Yeah. yeah. And what can people do? Well, the answer is you have to do something. So it's writing a letter. It's challenging the hospital. It's keeping your relatives out of hospitals if you want to keep them safe. Uh, but nobody who's involved in this uh, culling program should be allowed a moment's peace during the day without a member of the public change, um, questioning them and demanding answers to the key questions. Why is this happening? If you like what the UK column is doing, then uh, please support us. Uh, it's your support that keeps us going. We are looking to expand. We can only do that with your ongoing support and donations. So thank you very much to everyone currently uh, supporting and donating to us. Remember to help keep push, pushing the information out. We transmit in order that that information is spread far and wide. So see what you can do on all these platforms. As always, we'll say the uh, winter winds are coming in. So think about your hoodie. And uh, I'd also like to say, wow, because uh, David Noakes total uh, for that um, GoFundMe uh, fundraiser for finance, uh, for uh, legal support is increasing all the time. So we're now up to 32,000. Can we get up to 40,000 en route to that 50,000 pound goal? I hope so. Thank you to everybody who's donated. And I think it's about 866 donations have come in. Could we get the same number to finish off the fundraiser? That would be very good. Okay. Now, where are you taking us two on this one, Patrick. Well, this is an interesting story and everything we've talked about, you know, there is an ideological bent with certain people in the sort of the globalist camp, uh, elites, technocrats. The, the belief is that the earth is uh, overpopulated and we're locked into an overpopulation death spiral. This is from the beginnings of this uh, thinking with Thomas Malthus, uh, the 19th century uh, English uh, philosopher, and uh, talking about this fact and all his predictions and all of these other neo-Malthusians who came after him in the 20, uh, 20th century, and these eugenicists, their, their predictions of doom never came true. The food supply didn't run out. And so here's what an interesting story that's just come to light here. And we're calling this the Malthusian myth. And yes, it's being debunked uh, as we speak. And this is out of India, Brian. India's negative birth rate, globalist overpopulation myth falters once again. Let's take a look at the key point here. Look at this. India's total fertility rate is now heading well below what demographers refer to as a population's replacement level. And so that's a really, really key point, Brian. So, you know, just to explain what's going on here, normally the replacement fertility level uh, for a country, it's usually fixed at like 2.1. So this is based on the average number of children per woman that is needed to keep pace with the death rate in a country in order to maintain its current population levels. And this is the first time the Indian government has basically done this. And this is out of the National Family Health Survey. This was reported by the Indian Express. And the country had been aiming uh, for a uh, fertility rate, a replacement rate of 2.1. And a fall below 2 means that India 
has, a, has achieved its goal of population stabilization. So they're quite happy about this. And this means that we will possibly still become the world's most populous country somewhere maybe between uh, 2030. Uh, but now it's going to be delayed and who knows how long. It essentially means that we don't need to worry about overpopulation uh, in India. And the same trend, I would say, Brian, is also happening in China. Yeah. Uh, in Europe, it has a negative birth rate. It's well below this level in India. North America, well below. And so many other countries yeah. around the world experiencing uh, the same thing. And so let's just look at uh, a good source for this. And I will tell people, this has definitely instructed my uh, education on this. This is a book called The Empty Planet, The Shock of Global Population Decline. This is by Daryl Bricker and John Ibsen. And uh, this is a, a really good book that just gives you the statistical background and the data to back up this basic thesis. So it's, it, it, this is really important because climate change, the UN, Marie Strong, UN Sustainability, uh, 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 UN Sustainable Development Goals, all of these are predicated on this idea of overpopulation. And of course, Bill, Bill and Melinda Gates exceptionally strong on we've got to act to uh, save the world because of the pressure of population. And Bill Gates, his father, Bill Gates Sr., who yeah. was the head of Planned Parenthood, which is the largest uh, private abortion organization on the planet. That's Bill Gates. His father, by the way, was head of that organization. Yeah. He's also, uh, was also, or is a Malthusian uh, by, by uh, his ideological position on that. And this isn't something that's popular for elites to come out and say openly, but if you read their documents throughout the 20th century, it's very clear, Brian, there's a, there's a massive pedigree with Malth neo-Malthusian ideology and the elites and the Rockefellers and all of these various organizations, yeah. Davos, the World Economic Forum, I'm sure there are quite a few Malthusians in there and that is motivating their, their rush to implement the fourth industrial revolution and to shut down industry and uh, yeah. uh, all in the, under the guise of climate change. And so I, I think when you look at the actual data, Brian, you look at the actual science, it, it, it's in decline. And we are, we will hit the, we'll go over the crest of that bell curve very soon. And after that, it will be in decline. So all the fear mongering about overpopulation, a lot of this is not grounded in any science or any actual data. Yeah. And what, what comes into my mind, of course, the press at the moment is full of stories about migration and immigration into this country. We know there's a lot of our viewers and listeners want us to talk about this. Next week, we will be covering that subject. But of course, uh, a lot of fear in the migration of people. But let's remember the words of Sir Peter Sutherland, who was the UN's ambassador on migration. And he, he was quoted publicly. There's no ifs or buts about this. He said that basically Europe needed more mass migration in order to break down the homogeneity of nation states. So the migration is a construct in order to cause trouble inside any country that then comes under the pressure of, of uh, migration and immigration. So in the first instance, we need to look at where the policy is coming from. But of course, the UK papers at the moment, uh, yesterday, every single front page that I saw was on more and more immigrants coming into the country. Well, of course, they could only come in if the doors were open. Who opened the doors and why were the doors opened? And that brings us back onto men like uh, Sir Peter Sutherland. But we'll 
do more on that next week. I mean, the, the other the other back end, the last thing I'll say is the back end of that conversation on the other side, a lot of corporations and transnational corporations, they're very much pro-open borders. Because they want the slave labor. It's not only that, they, they literally, uh, Western advanced nations are in such a negative birth rate that they actually don't have the labor replacement. Their schools, yeah. they don't have the, the, the students to sit in schools to keep schools open. So all of these institutions are potentially in decline. The point here is you can argue whether you're pro or anti-immigration, you can have that debate, but the reality is governments are not being honest yeah. with the populations about the true scope of these type of trends. Instead, they're, they're pumping fear. Uh, they're basically saying, oh, there, there's finite resources. We're all going to die in 12 years because of the climate. And all yeah. you've got all these uh, hy uh, hysterical, um, hyperbolic uh, campaigns that are running like, like COP26 that actually are underpinned by the fake, uh, the myth uh, of terminal overpopulation. Yeah. And so and, and, and so that fear is driving policy and nothing good can ever come from basically policy being driven by false data or false claims. Yeah. So like like the pandemic, like climate change. Yeah. More on that in due course, because it's such a such a major subject there. Well, we're going to end up very quickly on the subject to defense. Now, of course, it's been reported quite widely now that uh, one of uh, our F-35s crashed into the Mediterranean. So the Telegraph headline was that this was because a plastic rain cover was left on. Uh, now, it seems to be that uh, one of the covers and modern jets, as they're sitting there on the tarmac or on the de deck of an aircraft carrier, of course, need the various inlets blanked off to stop seawater, saltwater, foreign debris getting in. And part of the process of getting the jet ready is to get these covers off. Uh, what does it show? Somebody made a mistake and that caused that aircraft $100 million worth or pounds worth of aircraft to come down out the sky. But of course, ultimately, we got to look to the British government because when the carrier project was, was uh, stopped and we lost all of our carrier operating expertise, uh, this was not something that was ever going to be regained overnight. And so the training of the deck crews who would have been responsible for this, uh, this is something that we're now going to pay the price because all of the expertise was wiped out by Cameron's attack on the, uh, the military. But while that's going on, um, what have we got? Well, apparently the whole of the British Army is to be restructured. We can't control the hospitals. We can't deal with education or the roads. Uh, but don't worry, because now we're going to transform the British Army. So we've got a fundamental shift in the British Army's posture. Um, and it's going to see the army configured around three UK divisions. But of course, this is nonsense because it means we're recognizing we can only put a division into the field, which is peanuts on the scale of European warfare. This is the key man, Ben Wallace, who's been speaking out. He said, far from being deprived of investment, as some claim, we're injecting 41.3 billion into army equipment and support this de decade. That's 8.6 billion more than the bid plan prior to the integrated review. We're using these funds to create a modern, innovative and digitized army. So a few, few uh, months, years ago, we were bankrupt. We were up to our eyeballs in debt, but we've magicked up another 41 billion here, Patrick. Our future army will be leaner. That means smaller, uh, but more productive. OK, prioritizing speed and readiness over mass mobilization. 
but still over 100,000 strong. Now, this is untrue because the army's around about 70,000. What he's trying to claim is that 30,000 reserves are going to be brought in effectively to form frontline troops. This sort of thing has always been a disaster because there's a difference between a regular professional and a reservist with uh, acknowledgement to uh, the good work that the reservists do. Uh, but note that we're now going to have civil servants and partners from the private sector. So this is no longer the British Army. There's something different happening here because we're partnered with the private sector. The army will now be reorganized to operate on a continuous basis. It's perpetual war, Pat, apparently, fielding all the relevant capabilities for this era of constant competition and persistently engaged around the globe, supporting our partners and deterring our adversaries. First, it will be globally engaged with more personnel deployed for more of the time, employed in a new network of regional hubs based on existing training locations in places such as Oman and Kenya. Apologies, an extra A down the bottom there. Uh, fascinating to see that Oman and Kenya have become regional hubs of the British Army. Interesting. Uh, well, strategically, we know why Oman is one of those hubs because of Iran. Right. Uh, but traditionally, uh, Britain's always had a big uh, uh, presence there on the Arabian Peninsula. So I'd like to know what the corporate interests are in those areas because they're now partnering with the British Army, according to Ben Wallace. He goes on saying, secondly, it'll be a key contributor to NATO war fighting, capable of fielding a division. A division. This is nothing. This is 20,000 men at most throughout the decade as we transition to the new capability, uh, capabilities for a fully modernized war fighting division by 2030. Uh, thirdly, it will be enhanced by state of the art equipment. So he goes on. Fourthly, uh, exploit innovation and experimentation to get ahead of the evolving threats. Well, that's something that's happened for the last 200 years, but according to Ben Wallace, it's something to be excited about. Fifthly, it'll have integration at its heart. Here we are bringing together regulars and reservists and civil servants to form a more productive force. So it's just fascinating. And uh, we're working with its DNA. And I, I think that's an interesting thing. That little A's crept in there again. So sorry about that. Sixthly and finally, it'll be an army that benefits the whole of our union. It's not the country anymore. It's the union with an increased proportion of the army based in each of the devolved nations and expenditure contributing to prosperity throughout the United Kingdom under our upcoming land industrial strategy. I don't even know what that is, but we'll be having a look into that. Uh, so what have we got here? Sorry, we might have been slightly out of order here. It, uh, I think we've had this one before, bringing in the civil servants. And um, they're going to streamline the army force structures. And this is a key quote that a lot of people have picked up on for too long. Historic infantry structures have inhibited our army's transformation. So when we got rid of the British regiment system, where people from local areas formed those regiments, and we're going to fight like hell to protect their fellow soldiers. We're going to make sure all of that is wiped out. And what's coming in? The Queen's Division, the Union Division, the Light Division, and the Guards and Parachute Division, and the Rangers. And uh, the last bit, I think, is this. Every single unit will be affected in some way by this change. And transformation on this scale requires radical change at the top of the army. 
And so I think the real message is the army is being destroyed as the historic defender of our nation, and it's being transformed into an offensive globalist militia. Well, that's uh, one way definitely you can look at it there. One thing I picked out of that, Brian, was uh, uh, the, the, the investment, 41 billion, 41 billion to be magicked up and invest into the military. And that, but that's just a little, uh, it's a 10 billion shy of what Matt Hancock uh, dropped on the NHS test and trace program. And what was that about, was it 30 billion or? Yeah, somewhere around that. Some incredible amount of money. I mean, the money they've dumped into COVID over the last two years uh, is incredible. So, I mean, if there's any other department in any other government or state uh, body around the country that's uh, uh, having problems getting hold of cash, just remember how much was burned yeah. uh, and how many people uh, got absolutely rich, how many billionaires were made through PPE and all of these uh, boondoggle projects like Test and Trace. Yeah. Okay. Well, we should end. You've got a little uh, image for us to finish on, I think, Patrick. Well, we all ended on a light note, of course, Brian. Well, not so light for this uh, this poor lady here back in the day in Salem. This is uh, 2021 Salem Redux. She's saying here, no mask, no jab. She is still healthy. Do we need any more evidence of witchcraft? So this is kind of just a really uh, having a little poke at the sort of situation today yeah so it's funny but it's actually way too on close the, on the button way too close to the truth brian okay patrick thank you very much for joining me i'd just like to say to all of our audience if you're starting to feel agitated as this uh, information comes out and you're beginning to feel mm, what is it the tension the anxiety you want to use some bad language the calmer, more reasonable you stay, the more powerful you are. This is a very important way of looking at it. So we'd like to say to all of our UK column viewers, listeners, supporters, stay calm, take action. It's action that conquers fear. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back at the same time on Monday. Bye-bye.